service over to Brother John Juniman, and we have been enjoying so much these lessons uh, on love. That you, uh, you come out to these services, and uh, we're, we're really, we, we really do appreciate uh, you, your sacrifice of time and, and so forth. And I just want to continue to thank Tab for all your worship, and uh, thanks for your, your heartfelt uh, just worship yourself. I've always found that um, the best uh, worship leader is actually the lead worshiper, and uh, the one who worships him or herself is, uh, is the best worship leader. So uh, I thank Tab for, uh, for being that. Uh, so I invite you back to 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, one of the great things uh, about this week is if you're really into this and really interested, you can almost anticipate where we're going to be each night. Uh, we started uh, uh, Saturday night on the first word in verse 4 about love suffering long. We looked last night at love being kind. So tonight we're just going word by word through verses 4 and 5. Um, until I run out of time, that is, later in the week. And uh, we're tonight landing on the concept of love does not envy. Um, and so uh, one interesting thing to note about verses 4 and 5 here is you might note that uh, he begins in verse 4 with two positives of what love is, and then basically the rest of these verses are what it's not. And so uh, one thing as I've been praying about this and studying is I've been coming to have a hypothesis I can't prove this yet, uh, but a hypothesis that these, the long suffering and the kindness are kind of almost the essentials, are the two essentials of what love is. And then what he's doing with the other things is kind of showing contrast of what it's not. So one interesting thing is these words are far more connected than I imagined. Um, you know, I, I never had studied 1 Corinthians 13 before. I'd seen it on a lot of plaques at the Christian bookstore. I've seen it on cross-stitch pillows. I've heard it recited at weddings. Um, it's all over Facebook. Um, 1 Corinthians 13, everybody knows 1 Corinthians 13. I never paid much attention, I guess, as I started to look into this word by word. There seems to be this, as I hope we'll see tonight, is this connection between these words. Uh, it's like they're linked together. What love is and what it isn't. And of course, remember that what he's doing in the chapter, we've said this before, but just so you remember, um, he's showing a contrast between this is who Jesus is, because if you just put the name Jesus in every time you see love, that makes sense. This is a picture of Jesus, his characteristics. It's a contrast to what you all been. So this is inviting us, Corinthians, would you, in contrast to how you all been acting, would you let him come in and do something new in your life and cause you to be this? So that's the invitation to you and me tonight. Are you open here tonight to let Jesus do a brand new thing in my life? That's why we have camp meeting, right? That's why we have services, is that we're here tonight. This is kind of like revival for us. And the purpose of revival is to come in, in a new way. Jesus, will you do something new in my life? So I pray that you'll come with that tonight as I, as I do. So in, in verse 4, again, love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy. Love does not envy. We know that's true about you, Jesus, as we, we read the Gospels, we look at your life, we read Paul's epistles and get to know you even more about what you're like. Uh, there was never even a thought in our mind that you would be ever envious. It's just not who you are. But we are. Uh, kind of born into this world and a fallen world and being fallen 
fallen human beings. It's uh, kind of how we act and how we think often. And so tonight, uh, we would like to just bring before you, honestly, um, ourselves for the light of the Word to shine on us, for the Holy Spirit to just illuminate our own ways, our own thoughts. And maybe tonight, would you maybe even shed light on ways that I am envious or jealous in ways I didn't realize. So that tonight, Jesus, um, even more, with one step more, with one more step of growth tonight in holiness, uh, we cannot just be like you tonight. You would be who you are in us. May we be like you are, I pray, more tonight. So please, uh, we need you to speak to us in these matters. These are matters that only the Holy Spirit can touch in our hearts. And so we need you tonight again. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, so as I shared with you before, um, the Greek wording is fascinating. Every one of these uh, words in this uh, uh, list, I guess you would call it, is uh, really f quite full and quite expressive. That's one thing about the Greek language, the genius of what God did with... I mean, you realize God is so in control. He chose, he orchestrated history so that the New Testament would be written when the Greek language was prevalent. <laughs> which is amazing because of how expressive it is. It's just so every word in Greek is like almost like a picture is like a thousand words. It's kind of like that a lot of times with some of these words. And that's no less true with this word when he says, love does not envy. The word envy um, comes from the Greek word zelao. We get the English word zealous from that. So there's kind of a good and bad side of that. It can only be used in a good or bad fashion. Um, on the good side, the word zelao, zealous, literally means to strive after or to desire something strongly. That can be a good thing. That can be a good thing, and it's used in good ways. Um, sometimes in Scripture even, of being zealous for something. That's, it's a good thing in some cases to be zealous for something. However, on the negative side, this zealousness, in a bad sense, it means to literally be jealous or envious. Your translation might say that already. Or even the idea of being a rival or competing with someone. Being a rival, at having the attitude of looking at others as rivals or competitors. That's kind of in, in, baked into this word a little bit. As a matter of fact, if you drill down a little further, I talked to you last night about um, if, you, if you get down to the root idea of the word, you can trace it back in its formation. If you, if you trace this word, zelao, down to its even more root form, zelas, one of the meanings of that is to boil. To boil. Which even gives a whole different picture of competitiveness, that, that competitiveness that boils over, you know. And probably as I say that tonight, you, you easily imagine that in our world, you understand in our world, we, we live in a very uh, competitive world. That's true everywhere. Almost probably every single area of life is touched by competitiveness. Competitiveness permeates really every aspect of the, the world in which we live. Think about that. Even to the point of boiling over sometimes. That's certainly true in politics. Boy, does that get boiling sometimes. And uh, political differences. And we live in a day, in an era, maybe, maybe, unprecedented, maybe with unprecedented competitiveness and rivalry in the area of politics do we live in today. Maybe. Maybe it's been this bad, but maybe it's been this bad before, but it's never been worse for sure. 
The idea of competitiveness, even to the point, as we see in the news and we watch in the dynamics of our culture in these days, to the point of, of, of course, boiling over. Competitiveness, rivalry. Um, one of my favorite areas uh, to observe this social dynamic is in sports. Sports can be very competitive, not only between the teams themselves, but between the fans of teams. You know what I mean? So I grew up in Chicago, and in Chicago, just um, it's almost like uh, maybe the doctor says it to you in the delivery room, I don't know, but in Chicago, when you're born in Chicago, there are two teams that you hate from birth. In football, it's the Packers, and in baseball, it's the St. Louis Cardinals. It's just kind of like you just can't help yourself. It's just kind of like if you, if you have any affinity towards those teams at all, you're a traitor. It's just kind of this thing, this competitiveness is born into. Now, I've been around Ohio a good bit over the years. I really have. Uh, you know, over the last 30 years of ministry, I've been around Ohio a good bit. And, and one dynamic I've noticed is that you people do get a little bit excited about sports, you know. <laughs> so, like, there's this thing about Ohio State. And uh, I, was preaching at this, I was preaching at this other holiness camp meeting, which will remain nameless at this time. I was preaching at this other holiness camp meeting in Ohio, and, I, and I, as I was talking about the idea of sanctification and what Jesus can do in our hearts, and he can free us from hatred and free us from competitiveness, and he can cause us to love even our enemies, I made the illustration that maybe, just maybe, Jesus could even so work in the heart of an Ohio person that an Ohio person could even root for Michigan sometimes. <laughs> and the people at that camp knew that I liked bananas, and so the next morning on my porch on my cabin, there was a bundle of bananas, and there was a note that said, if you think I'm ever going to root for Michigan, you're bananas. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sometimes it boils over. <laughs> Business world, of course, in our world is dog-eat-dog. -dog. It's, uh, hey, you know, hostile takeovers. There's little compassion for the little guy. It's, it's all about competition in the business world. Hey, um, I don't know what it's like by you in the Cleveland or Akron or Canton areas, but hey, where I live, even in Nashville, driving gets rather combative at times. I grew up in Chicago, so I'm used to it, but there's this real competitive, there's this kind of like you're not, you know, especially when those two lanes or three lanes are narrowing down to two, you are not getting in ahead of me, right? Competitiveness and driving and in traffic. You're not like that, of course, I know. Shopping, you ever witness Black Friday shopping? I mean, the whole competitiveness, even to the point of boiling. You want to talk about boiling over? Sometimes competitiveness between siblings. I've seen that, experienced it in my own family. Sometimes sibling rivalry to the point of just clashing and competitiveness. Even classmates, I'm competitive with my classmates that I graduated with from school. You know, it is with fam you know, class reunions, going back, comparing notes, comparing myself versus him or her, how far we've come, how do we look, what have we accomplished? in life, competitiveness, maybe with colleagues that I work with. It's about who's doing better, who's getting more recognition, who's getting the uh, promotions and so forth, even with my friends. And unfortunately, unfortunately, just like in ancient Corinth, that has slipped into our churches. can't tell you how many conversations I hear, how many times I come across just attitudes among Christians where the attitude seems to be that among, among denominations, we're like, we're like in competition with each other in the same town. 
In the city where I live, well, near where I live in Lebanon, Tennessee, the headquarters of Cracker Barrel, by the way, um, where I live in Lebanon, Tennessee, I, there, a friend of mine was on staff at a, one of the larger churches, and, and he was hired on staff at one of these larger churches in Lebanon, Tennessee, and his purpose was to check out what the other churches were doing so that they could do programming and stuff to compete with the other churches in town. Even within our own denomination, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, near there, and uh, in, our, in our area, there are just umpteen, wherever there's a Nazarene college, there's umpteen Nazarene churches, and even within our, in our in between Nazarene churches, there's this kind of revolving door and competition, and it's kind of like we're, we're competing against each other, even to the point of boiling over sometimes. That's what was happening in Corinth. Again, remember that what Paul's doing in this chapter, he's He's not just picking random ideas out of the air for 1 Corinthians 13. This is not just Paul sitting back drinking a, drinking a lemonade and a hammock one day and, saying, and waxing poetic about love. He's addressing specific things in this church. And one of the very specific things in this church going on was rivalry and competition between different groups. He talks about it back in chapter 1 even. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Hey, I've heard about this from some of you. I've heard about this from some of you in verse 10. Um, I plead with you that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For, verse 11 of chapter 1, it has been told to me, concerning you by some people from Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. There are divisions among you. In your church. In your church. Like little factions, little, rival, little tribal attitude in your church. He goes on to say in chapter 3, where he says in verse, chapter 3, verse 3, for, for you're still carnal. That's, that's a holiness concept. It means self-centered. All of these things are a manifestation of self-centeredness. You're still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Competition. Now, I have to tell you, in my own life, I just want to testify for just a moment. God, over the course of my uh, years as a Christian since 1985, God has been sanctifying me in my attitudes of competitiveness in sports. It is possible. So God's been doing a lot in my heart over these years, but what I've come to realize is sometimes we are competitive in ways we don't realize even. There are milder forms of competition besides just all-out fistfights and hatred and boiling over. Sometimes it's more underneath the surface in our thinking. Sometimes it's just in our attitudes in a milder form. For example, sometimes competition takes the form of me just looking at somebody else and saying things like, why not me? Why them? You ever, have you ever asked yourself before, just even inside yourself, have you ever asked yourself, why them and not me? Why did they get to, or why did they and not me? And it seems to be this milder form of competition. As a matter of fact, the more I'm into this in the scripture, it seems that the core concept of envy at its core is this. Here, here's, here's boil down envy to its core idea. 
Envy is the concept that somebody else has or may get something that I don't. Somebody else has something I don't, or somebody else may get something I don't, and I feel an envy or competitiveness about that. In worst case scenarios, it's that when I let that fester inside of me, it can become almost so strong that I can almost start rooting against them. Like I've often heard Ohio State people say, my favorite two teams are Ohio State and whoever's playing Michigan. Right? So, in Chicago, it's my favorite two teams are the Bears and whoever Green Bay's playing that Sunday. I just want them to lose. I, I, just, I just want them to do bad because I don't want them to have something. I don't want somebody else to have something that I can't have. You understand that all of that is based on the principle of this world. This world, not the kingdom of God, but this world, this fallen world has its own economy. This world has its own principles of operating that are different from the kingdom and different than the way things are going to be in heaven. By the way, that's what sanctification is all about. That's why sanctification is so important, this holiness that we preach and sing about and we believe, is because what's happening is God's getting us ready to live in heaven. Because heaven's not going to be like here. And what he's doing is, for our entire lives, he can sanctify our hearts, but then the rest of us, he's got a lot to work out yet. And sanctification is this process of him working. Oswald Chambers said he's working out what he's worked in. He's getting us ready for heaven. Because this world is different than the kingdom, and this world operates on an economic principle that there's only so much to go around. There's only so many pieces of the pie, so you better get yours. You better get yours before he gets his. Or you better root against him getting his so there's more left for you. That's the, that's the principle of this world. There's only so much to go around. There's only so many pieces of the pie. There are the haves and the have-nots, and you don't want to be a have-not. So you better do whatever you can to be a have. It's all about who wins. It's all about who gets. That's why in, back in chapter 9 of Corinthians... Paul writes this uh, concept, he uses this illustration in chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that all who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? That's the way of the world. Everybody's competing, but only one gets the prize at the end. So you better run and step on, and you better outdo, and hey, if a few people drop out of the race, well, good for me. But he goes on to say in the second half of the verse, but you all... Run in such a way that you all may obtain it. That's the kingdom. The world says everybody out for themselves. Everybody runs, one gets it, it's going to be me. Watch out. The kingdom says we're all running together and we all want to cross the finish line together. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter who comes across first or last. What matters is we all get there. That's the kingdom. But the world is all about this lie, and that's what it is, a lie. Satan is the originator of this principle of envy, because if you'll remember, it is Satan who wanted what God had. Satan, the originator of envy, saying, I want what God has for myself. And so the whole of envy, whenever I feel envious in my life about somebody else, why him, not me? Whenever I feel envious, it's based on two lies that the enemy tries to sow into my mind. One lie is 
somebody has it better than me. That's a lie. In other words, the grass is greener over there than it is over here. Now, we know about this because for the past 10 years, we had a horse, and then we got a second horse. We were so smart. And can I tell you what I've been doing for the last 10 years of, of horse ownership is, uh, is repairing fences. Because a 1,000-pound animal is absolutely convinced that the grass right over there must taste better than the grass on this side of the fence. Same grass, same color, same everything, but he likes to bend over. So I've been repairing fences for the last 10 years, still at it, because that 1,000-pound animal thinks he has to bend over that fence because he's absolutely convinced that it's better over there than over here, but I do that all the time. Why him, not me, with the assumption that he must have it better than me? What he has is better than what I have. Lie number one. The second lie that envy is based on is the lie that God doesn't care about me. God must not care about you. He cares about that guy. He cares about them. But he's obviously, we talked last night about God is kind and God is engaged, but the enemy doesn't want us to believe that. So tonight, we have to go back to the truth. We've been really trying to stay on this. And may I encourage you tonight that the antidote to envy and all the spirit, and this is a spiritual battle, if you're not aware of this in your life, there is a constant spiritual battle going on for your mind and your heart. There's a constant spiritual battle going on for the church. You know, all the competition and all the bitterness, political rivalry, sports rivalry, uh, economic rivalry, business rivalry, traffic rivalry, and especially in the church, the rivalry between us as Christians, you do understand that's the result of spiritual warfare. Satan does not want us to be unified. So what's the antidote to spiritual warfare? The truth. You know how when you turn on a light, there's just no darkness? Same thing with lies. Turn on the truth and it just dispels the lies. So we need to go back to the truth of the word. And the antidote, can I tell you tonight, the antidote to envy. Do you want to live your life being envious? Do you want to live your life being bitter? Do you want to live your life thinking somebody else always has it better than me? It just kind of, just kind of turns you. It depresses you. Makes you a sour person. I don't want to be that. And what's the antidote to envy? The antidote to envy is, are you ready? It's the word we looked at last night. God is kind. That's the antidote to envy. In other words, to understand tonight that God is good and God is... See, what I told you, I, I've been learning these words are way more connected with each other than I realize. And it's no accident that I believe that Paul puts envy right after God is kind because to understand the kindness of God is what helps me not have to be envious. Because I can know for a fact that God, as we said last night, God is engaged in my life. He's not helping that person and that person and he's for them out there and he's left me to myself and, well, woe is me. No, God is engaged in my life tonight. He's not distant. He's not disengaged. And I said last night, even when it seems like it, boy, it doesn't, sure doesn't feel like God's working in my life today. Well, that's a lie. Because he is. 
Well, I don't feel it. That's all right. It doesn't matter. You don't have to base, I don't have to base my Christianity on my feelings. Don't tell my wife I quoted her, all right? Your feelings are not your friend. God is engaged even when it does not seem like he is. He, and, and, and when it seems like he's engaged in their life, and look how he's helping them, and look at the opportunities he's giving them, and look how easy they have it, and man, it's like just, man, it's like God's blessings on their life, and then here's me over here scratching myself. Even when it seems like he's engaged in them and not me, or they have something that seems like they have something I don't, and I'm asking myself, why not me? I can remember tonight God is good. He's good to me. And he is engaged in my life tonight, and that never ceases. When he says in the word before this, love is kind, God is kind, that never changes. God's not like me. He's not moody. He doesn't change. Remember James 1.17, when my daughter graduated college, the girls, uh, you know, those black graduation, the square hats, you know, they, they made a verse on the top in glitter. That's the new thing. So my daughter did her verse, James 1.17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of change. God never changes, does he? Jesus Christ is the same. He's always kind. Even if it doesn't seem like it, God is kind. His goodness, and then you know that. You, you, you know Romans 8, 28. He does what? He works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I love the prayer that Paul prays. You... I probably don't have to quote this, but I love the prayer that he prays in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. We pray for you that God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. God is good. And may you see his goodness in your life. Now I have to tell you tonight, sometimes God's goodness to me in my life is not what I think it should be. I have my own ideas about what's good, but God sees what I don't see about what's good. It's kind of like when you're, it's kind of like when you're five years old. Now, I want to do a little survey tonight. Can anybody, you know, remember back when you were little? Can anybody remember tonight, there was some moment in your life when you were little, five, six years old, or whatever, and you wanted something and your parents wouldn't let you have it. Or you wanted to do something, and they said no. Or you wanted to eat something, and they said no. You wanted to do something, they said no. And I thought to myself, I have the meanest parents in the whole world. Anybody ever think that? Now, do you think they really were, now in retrospect? Yeah. Maybe they were. <laughs> Maybe. But I propose to you tonight that in most cases, they weren't. They were actually being good and looking out for our good. But a five-year-old mind can't see what a 20- or 30- or 40-year-old parent can see. A perspective of God 
is so far above what I can see. Who am I to tell God what's good for my life? But I do. (laughs) But God sees what I don't see, and he's working out his good. How many times in my life do I look back on some experience or something I've gone through and see the good that God brought out of it, but I never, ever, I complained about it, I griped about it, I cried and whined about it, and God brought his good out of it anyway. Because God is good. God is kind, and he is engaged in my life. He cares, and what he's doing in our lives tonight, can I say to you, it's not second best. There is, oh, he's doing great for that, and I have to settle for it. No, there is no second best with God tonight. He's for us. Now, granted, granted, I may be disregarded by this world. I may be forgotten by this world. I may be mistreated. I may receive second best from this world. That's happened to me on a few occasions. How about you? You ever gotten taken on a deal? Most of you are probably smarter than me, so you you never did. You ever got taken advantage of? Somebody didn't give you their first best. They give you second, third, fourth, tenth best. I didn't know it. That dumb horse. <laughs> Just kidding. And the world will do that. But can I tell you tonight, not God. God will never forsake you. He will never give you second best. He will never, as a matter of fact, the scripture is so clear on this tonight. God is so amazingly in love with us tonight. He rejoices over us. I just love Zephaniah. 317, that he rejoices, think about this, at this very moment, he rejoices over us with singing. Can you imagine that even at this very moment, God would be singing over us? Zephaniah 317. I also came across uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 41. I was looking at a lot of verses about this, about how God feels over us and he rejoices over us and he sings over us and he loves us and he's good to us and and we're his favorite, you know, all of us. He's not not one favorite. It's like, I don't know how he does this, but we're all his favorite. And it says in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 41, yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will assuredly plant them in this land With all my heart and with all my soul, God says. He's not half-hearted tonight with you and me. He's all in. He's not all for some people and with John Jinman, well, not sure. We'll see how the day goes. He's all in, rejoicing for our good. I used to keep it in my Bible and I don't know where it went. Um, there's this person in my life. And besides, besides my wife, if there was ever a person that I knew loved me, it was my grandma. Um, she was the one that, 
She was the one that gave the name of our family to the Nazarene Church, and which led them to come and visit us and invite us to church. She was the one that would tell me every single time she saw me. She asked me a question. How's grandma's pride and joy? Don't repeat this, but she was the one when she'd give my sisters a one dollar, she slipped me a five. <laughs> How's grandma's pride and joy? That's how God feels about you and me tonight. Not this stepchild, not this, well, what are we going to do with him? Well, find a place. No, God's pride and joy tonight. No second best with this kind of God. Again, in the world's economy, there's favorites. In this world economy, it's, hey, some get it, some don't. Some are favored, some aren't. Some are given privilege, some aren't. But in God's economy, it's how he feels about us. That if, I don't know how he does it, but he does. In the heart of God, every single one of us tonight is God's pride and joy. Can you get that tonight? Would you let God, would you let the Holy Spirit sink deep into your heart tonight the truth that our identity is not in this world and our identity is in Christ? See, these Corinthians, they were so much fighting, we'll talk later in the week, they were so much fighting for their identity through this or that. That's what's happening up in verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and through I have all faith so I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. It's like you guys are trying to be something through this and that and everything under the sun. But the truth of the matter is we're not anything, but we are to him. Pride and joy tonight. And his kindness is toward us. His goodness, his, his engagement in our lives is the antidote to the envy that we feel. When I think that somebody else, when somebody else gets in and somebody else has privilege and somebody else is, 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 is having good of it and God's involved in them and the grass is greener, the antidote to all of that is to realize God's engaged in my life tonight. God's best for me and for you tonight. And the amazing thing about that is, and again, I don't know how God does it, but he does because he's God and I'm not. But God's good tonight is, God's very best tonight is for me and for them. Yeah, God's doing his best in that person's life that I look at as a rival or why him, not me. God's, God's working his best in that person's life as well as mine tonight and yours. It's not an either or like this world says. It's a both and. And there is no second best, no less than. And I invite you tonight, would you allow the Holy Spirit to unquestionably, unswervingly, could he just emblazon it on our mind tonight that God is good and engaged in our lives right now? Doesn't that, as I said last night, doesn't that make you want to respond to a God like that? God, if you're that engaged and you love me that much and you care about me that much and you're that good, why would I not want to respond to you every second of my life? Really, God, I thought I was on my own to figure this out. Really? You're with me all the time and you're good and 
You're working your best in my life in all things? Really? Well, I'm just going to respond to you moment by moment. One more thing. If God can do that in our lives, if I can become convinced of that by the Holy Spirit transforming my heart and my mind, God is good. He's engaged. Antidote to envy. It allows him to do something else remarkable in me that I no longer need to see other people as my rivals or my competitors. They're just people who need Jesus and he's working in their lives too. Wouldn't it be something if there's no rivals in our world for us? There's no competitors. You're not competing with anybody. I'm not competing for anything at all. Nobody's going to take anything away from me. God's in charge of all that. And I'm not competing with anybody because you all and everybody out there, they're just people that Jesus is working in their life too, just like me. See, again, the economy of the kingdom. Th think about all through the New Testament. Think about God's view on this. There's no competitors. We're always competing. We're always thinking about why him, not me. Think about that. Remember that parable of the workers in, in uh, Matthew 20? Remember that? Isn't that funny? This guy, guy goes to the market, hires these guys, says, here's your way, you know, here's what we agreed to on wage. All through the day, he hires other people, you know, all through the day. At the very end of the day, hires some guys at the very end of the day. They, they just go out there to the work site, barely put on their gloves. Oh, quitting time. And at the end of the day, they all get paid the same. And those guys from the beginning of the day, what? And, and the whole point of the parable is, there's no rivals. Hey, God is in charge, and he is giving what is the very best to all of us, no matter how we deserve it tonight. Prodigal son, older brother just steaming. Why him, not me, rival, 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 competitor? And what's the point of the parable? God loves us all, just same. Paul's talking about his preaching in Philippians 1. He's in jail. Uh, he's in imprisonment, kind of under house arrest in, 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 uh, in Rome. And he writes this letter to the Philippians talking about how when he's out, that when he's in prison, there's certain people kind of trying to make a name for themselves at his expense. What? How dare people try to... My competitors are out there trying to make hay of things when I'm stuck here. And why them, not me? You know what Paul says? I don't care. As long as the gospel, as long as the gospel gets preached, that's what I'm about. And I invite Tab to come and. You know, that's the principle of who Jesus is. Do you hear it tonight? Love, Jesus, does not envy. At least not in the way this world does. Remember I told you at the beginning, there's kind of two sides to this word zelao. And on the positive side, it's about being zealous for something. Do you understand tonight? God is zealous for us. He's zealous for us tonight. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11 to you know, talking about the heart of Jesus Christ in him, he says about the church, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I'm for you because God's for you. 
Can I ask you tonight? This, this may be a little hard. And maybe tonight we just need the Holy Spirit to just kind of maybe show us something that we hadn't seen before. Is there anybody tonight in my life that Jesus wants to give me more of a heart for? That maybe I've had a hard time with or maybe I have envied? Why him, not me? Why her, not me? Why, why, why? Why do they, why... But God's good. And he's engaged in my life and in his and in hers. And tonight, if I could become so convinced of that and his goodness and his engagement, and, and Jesus, I'm going to respond to, man, why, you're, why would I want anything else? I, God, please don't give me what I think is best. God, just have at it with your best in my life, and I'm just going to respond to you. And as he could do that in my life, and oh, God, would you just, the people that I've seen as competitors or rivals or whatever it is that I've bristled with, could you begin to give me your heart, like, instead of, like, hoping they lose? Maybe I don't actively hope they lose, but I don't feel real bad if they do, you know. Could you give me a heart that is for them? You say, John, that is impossible. There is no way until heaven that Ohio State will root for Michigan. I know it's impossible. Or maybe somebody that you don't understand how the raw end I got of something and they come, smell, they come out smelling like a rose. I, how in the world, they are so lucky all the time. That, and it just makes me so like frustrated. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's somebody I work with. Maybe it's a colleague. Well, that other church that, you know, it's so frustrating how they grow and we don't. You know, so frustrating. It's just so hard. But remember tonight, holiness is not trying harder. It's God, do something in me that's impossible. And you, change my heart and change my mind. And God, if it takes me into eternity to root for Green Bay, then do it. And remember the antidote, his goodness tonight. Could I tonight become so overwhelmed by the goodness of God? God, open my eyes tonight that I may see. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened to see all the things that are true tonight. Could you open my eyes to see God? You're good. I don't have any rivals. 
your good and doing all the very best of eternity in my life. Thank you, God. And may I become so overwhelmed by that and so convinced of that. I never have to be envious again. I can be four. Do you need that in your life tonight, anybody? Would you like to talk to him about it? Respond to this good God tonight. Pray here, your seats, or find a place. But tonight as Tab leads us, would you be overwhelmed by the goodness of God tonight? No need for envy, because he's good. Respond with us.